Do you know what it feels like to be forgiven? Do you know what it feels like to have someone else forgive you for wrongs that you did to them? To have your sins forgiven or overlooked, not held against you? I remember one of the first times that I think I really felt forgiven by someone else. When I was around 10 years old, I had developed a little bad habit of petty theft. And I had started stealing some baseball cards from some people I knew. And once I had stolen a few dollars worth of baseball cards from one of my very good friends. And in this situation, I definitely learned the lesson of being sure that my sins will find me out. My friend didn't necessarily suspect me of stealing his cards, but he told his dad that he was missing some. And his dad, being very clever, put two and two together and went to my dad, informed him of what was going on, and my dad came to me one day and confronted me about it. And I still remember the sinking feeling of despair and guilt and shame that I felt that day. I knew that I had sinned against my friend, that I had sinned against God, and I figured that things would never be the same again. That I thought I had lost a great friendship because my friend would never forgive me. Well, soon after this, my dad took me over to my friend's house and had me confess what I had done to him. And I tell you, that was excruciating. I was crying. I could barely get my words out. I apologized for what I had done. I asked for his forgiveness. And and then surprising to me, he told me right away, I forgive you. And as we left the house later on, my dad told my friend, thank you for forgiving him. And he said, of course I forgave him. He's my friend. And he probably had no idea how much those words meant to me. As I left, I still felt broken and ashamed, but I felt free. I felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off my shoulders. And that though I had fallen, everything would be okay. I also felt a gratitude and an affection for my friend. By him forgiving me, I felt loved by him. And I wanted to love him in return, to to be a better friend from that day forward. It was really motivating. Have you ever felt this way with a friend or a family member before? Completely freed by their forgiveness? Bigger question. Have you ever felt this way with God? Have you ever felt completely broken by your sin, yet amazingly forgiven for them. It is an unbelievable feeling and one that we all must feel at some point in our lives to move from guilt and shame and despair to gratitude and freedom and devotion. 
And I would hope that we are experiencing this freedom frequently in our lives because we never grow out of forgiveness. Forgiveness, we frequently need to be forgiven of our sins. And because being forgiven by God inevitably leads us to loving Him more or to loving Him in the first place, which is what we exist to do. We're going to see these truths vividly in a story from Jesus' ministry today. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and we'll be starting in verse 36. If you have one of the Pew Bibles in front of you, it will be on page 864. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And as we do every time we open God's Word together, I'd like to just begin by praying for us. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray as we look into these this story today, the story of you here on earth with us, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you for who you are, to see your authority and your power, and to see your grace, your forgiveness for us. I pray that we would be completely broken by our sin and yet awed by what you've done for us and move to love you more today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of last week's story, we saw a number of people respond to Jesus in two ways. Some people responded with belief, and some others responded with rejection. We read this in verse 29 of chapter 7. It said, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Always seemingly leading the way in the rejection side of things were the Pharisees. See, passage after passage, they were always doing this. And Jesus had some fairly critical words for them in the next few verses. He said in verse 30, or 31, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sing a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now those verses are a bit confusing. We talked about them in depth last week. But basically what Jesus was saying was that these religious leaders would never be satisfied. Their misguided expectations of the Messiah would never be met. Now, these are harsh words, and Jesus essentially called them discontent, misguided, slanderous, and unwise. These were not words that would earn him many friends among the religious leaders. And yet, this is what we read in the very next verse, beginning today's passage. Verse 36 says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. But Jesus had had just reamed out the Pharisees. Why would one now invite him home for dinner? We don't know the answer to that. We can only speculate. But this man, whose name was Simon, we learn later, was perhaps curious by Jesus. Maybe intrigued by him. Maybe he thought, you know, this Jesus guy is making some good sense, and I should do my due diligence and check him out more closely. Maybe Simon just wanted to look good in his community. 
where people were going gaga over Jesus. Perhaps Simon wanted to test Jesus in some way. The Pharisees were known for that type of thing. Or in that day, hosting a rabbi in your home was considered as a way to earn you good merit with God, so that God was pleased if you opened up your home to a respected teacher. So maybe that's what Simon was up to. But for whatever reason, he invited Jesus home for dinner, and showing that he was no respecter of persons, Jesus accepted, and he went with him. And it says, And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Now, in Middle Eastern fashion, it was fashion to have the table near the ground, where people would sit on the ground and literally recline at the table. So this is what Jesus was doing here. But have you ever received a dinner invitation that you knew would be really awkward? I know I have. <laughs> where they're, nobody's quite sure how to act. They know there's people who don't like each other there, so everyone's nervous. There's superficial conversations with long and quiet breaks in the conversation, very awkward pauses. I imagine that this meal in Luke 7 was very much an awkward meal. The host knew that his dinner guest didn't seem to like people like him very much. And everyone else there knew it too. They all knew this. So everyone was probably walking on eggshells, choosing their words very carefully. Could probably have cut the tension with a knife. But then, this tension was suddenly broken in an unlikely way. Read with me in verse 37. It says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. This was a very surprising turn of events. And hence Luke's, and behold, exclamation in verse 37. No one expected this woman, an uninvited guest, to show up at this house on this night. Who was she? Where'd she come from? Well, Luke doesn't give, her, give us her name. He only gives us her reputation. Did you see that? He said, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's all we know about her. Everyone knew her to be a notorious sinner. We don't know what kind of sinner. It's possible that a woman of the city implied some sexual innuendo. So it's possible that she was a well-known prostitute in the area. That's, but that's we don't know for sure. We do know that sin is what she was known for. What a reputation. So how did she get into this dinner party? Who let her, of all people, into this house? Well, you have to understand something about dinner parties in Jesus' day to understand this. When wealthy people, like this Pharisee, threw dinner parties, they were semi-public occasions and events. So almost all homes were open concept and dinners would be hosted in their courtyard. And people from the town would often stop by for a bit and come and go and, and ask questions and, and maybe just come and enjoy a little bit and then leave. So really the dinner parties were more like block parties than private dinners. And the center of the proceedings always happened at the main table with the invited guests. But other people would often gather around the edge of the courtyard. 
surrounding them. And this is probably where this woman was. She probably came in unnoticed and was trying to be invisible in this outer, cor- in this outer crowd in the courtyard. I want you to put yourself in her shoes for a minute. Okay? Imagine what it would have been like to be here on this night. This woman had been ostracized from the respectable side of society. She may have been disowned by her family and friends. No one liked her anymore. For years, she had participated in an ungodly and wicked lifestyle, maybe as her job, and it had likely worn on her. Sin had taken its toll. Since she grew up in a highly moral community, she had to know that she was sinning, that God wasn't pleased with her. She had probably spent years feeling guilty and ashamed, alone, in despair. She was probably hurting, depressed. Maybe she felt stuck in a vicious cycle of sin. And then one day, she heard news of this new amazing rabbi, a miracle worker, they said. And not only that, but this man, Jesus, seemed to have a special connection with God. Some were saying that he could be the long-awaited Messiah, Savior. Jesus had even been reported as telling people that their sins were forgiven. Now that would have been intriguing. Can you even imagine, as, as this woman heard about Jesus, the hope that she must have felt? And then as she tried to track Jesus down, she felt that she just had to see him, to see if these claims were true. If they were. She couldn't allow herself to entertain a hope. God would never forgive her for what she'd done. But what if they were true? What if? And so she found herself one day watching Jesus teach extraordinary things, watching him perform astounding miracles. I imagine her hope grew. And then she followed him that evening to where he was having dinner, and she probably felt guilty for even doing that. Standing on the outskirts of the Pharisee's courtyard, watching Jesus. But as she watched Jesus interact with those around him, she would have found herself marveling. The reports were true. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is compassionate. He's just. He's sensitive. He's loving. He must be more than just another ordinary man. He has to be. And if all of this was true, maybe he actually could, and maybe he actually did forgive sins. Jesus was the epitome of all her wildest dreams come true. He was proof that maybe, just maybe, there was hope for her. And as she watched, 
I imagine the emotions started to swell up. She was overwhelmed. The tears began to well up, and she felt she had to do something. What could she do to show Jesus how she was feeling? And as she let the emotions swell up inside her, she couldn't contain it any longer, and she burst forth out of the crowd and, and ran towards the main table, and she fell at the feet of this amazing man, grabbed his feet, and then just let the tears flow. being there. And then, then she realized where all her tears were falling. Right onto Jesus' feet. How embarrassing. All the, the tears were making the dust from his feet smear all over. What could she do? wash his feet. He needed a washing. So she quickly took her hair out of its bun and pulled it down and used that as a makeshift towel to to dry his feet, using her tears to wash. It would have been a mediocre foot cleansing, but at least Jesus would know she cared. What else could she do to make things better? What else? Oh yeah, she almost forgot. She had brought something special along with her from home that day. Maybe this was usually used as part of her job. We don't know. But she fumbled for a little flask of perfume from her pockets and and quickly pulled the cork off and then poured its expensive contents onto Jesus' feet. The fragrance of the alabaster began to fill the room. She, She rubbed the ointment into Jesus' calloused and dirty feet and dry feet. She felt no sorrow for using the perfume on such an occasion as this. Just felt right. Didn't matter that it may have been her most valuable and prized possession of this life. After this, the scripture said that she leaned down and she kissed Jesus' feet. Not romantically or erotically. No, this was a kiss of remorse. Of apology and appeal and adoration all rolled into one. And she just couldn't stop kissing his feet over and over again. I'm sure she thought, yes, this is the position I have to take before this great man. Of a humble and contrite servant. Only slaves took care of people's feet this way. But at this point, she'd have been happy to be Jesus' slave. she going over the top? Maybe. She couldn't help it. She was so overwhelmed by the thought of grace that she let everything out. All her pent-up emotions, all her hopes, all of her alabaster perfume. And she was content to lovingly worship at Jesus' feet. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, 
She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Meanwhile, I imagine the room had fallen silent. People had to be stunned. Jesus, remarkably, wasn't stopping this woman. Was he stunned too? Maybe he was just enjoying the foot massage. What were, this is what people had to be thinking. What was going on? We don't know exactly how Jesus responded as this woman went about her business. And it, but if you know anything about Jesus, you know that he wouldn't be ignoring her. You, I imagine that he was comforting her and patiently letting her cry it out. Accepting her broken heart as repentance and receiving her humble worship. But then Jesus looked around the room and he saw people's shock, their silent shock. He saw their horror. Oh no, not her. What is she doing here? He saw her, that they were confused. What in the world is Jesus doing, even letting her near him? This is certainly how his host, Simon, felt. Read in verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. But Jesus was the master of taking situations around him and using them as teaching moments. And so he used what was going on in this room and with this woman to teach everyone there a powerful lesson. And this lesson is what is going to give us our first major point today, get from this story, and that's this, that Jesus' great forgiveness should inspire passionate love from sinners like us. Jesus' forgiveness should inspire passionate love from us just like it did from this woman. Jesus' great forgiveness should inspire passionate love from sinners like us. Simon's response, the Pharisee here, was judgmental, hypocritical, and full of contempt. He said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see what he was doing? He placed himself and this woman in separate categories. He, had, he called her this sort of woman and, and a sinner, implying that he himself was different, that he was good and righteous while she was a sinner. But while the Pharisees' response was really unexcusable, it is understandable. Good people just didn't associate with people like this woman. It would tarnish their own reputation as well as casting suspicion on them. So what was Jesus doing? Jesus was doing here what no religious person of his day would do, not only allowing a notorious sinner to touch him, but welcoming it. If Simon had any inklings that Jesus might be the Messiah, this squelched them. He said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known better. Implying, couldn't be. But Simon had severe misunderstandings of God 
and his grace. To him, grace was unavailable to the worst sinners and unnecessary for the righteous. There are really two responses to Jesus in this story which are very much contrasted with each other. Philip Ryken says that one had a social, high social position and the other was an outcast. One was a host, the other was not even an invited guest. One was angry, one was overcome with joy. One was still evaluating Jesus while the other had decided to trust him with her entire life. But the fundamental contrast was this. Only one of them believed that God had grace for sinners. It does us good to consider who we're more like. Now we might rush to think, oh, wait, wait, wait. I definitely believe that God has grace for sinners. But do we really? Do we really believe that God is willing to forgive Sinners, even if they're the worst sinners. Is God really willing to forgive, say, women who've had abortions? Or the doctors who perform them? Is God willing to forgive a hostile atheist who has mocked God his entire life? Is God willing to forgive men who have abandoned their wives and families? Is God willing to forgive women who have sold their bodies for sex? Or pimps? Is God willing to forgive terrorists or rapists or murderers or physical abusers? The answer to all of the above is an astounding and resounding Yes. And some of us don't like that one bit. I'm not saying that God will forgive all these people. These still have to believe and repent. But if they do, God has more than enough forgiveness for them. Because just... It's just like God has more than enough forgiveness for you. See, we fall into the same trap as Simon, thinking that we're in a different camp. We might even admit that we're all sinners, and we think that there are, but then we think there are good sinners and okay sinners, and there's bad sinners, and then there's terrible sinners. But no. There's only one human condition, and that is that we're all terrible sinners. Sure, some may sin more often or in seemingly worse ways, but we've all sinned repeatedly and frequently against God's holy throne with our lies, greed, lust, pride, idolatry, blasphemy, covetousness, disobedience, apathy, gluttony, anger, gossip, and sexual immorality. We all owe a debt for our sin that we cannot pay. A debt. 
We all desperately need God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. When was the last time that you wept over your sin? Or wept with joy over God's forgiveness? Like the woman, we must realize how awful our own sin is and how glorious God's grace is. And then we need to ask, how do we treat people that we might consider to be worse sinners than us? And depending on how good of a person you think you are, this could be a few people or many people. Do we look down on people with self-righteousness, condemn them in our minds, Or do we see them as hurting and wounded people in need of a Savior? Do we jump at opportunities that we get to love them and care for them and show them God's love? Or do we welcome them into our lives, showing them that God has grace for them too? That's how Jesus consistently treated sinners that came to him. Or do we avoid them like the plague? Do we shun them? vilify them. We can't respond to sinners with disgust like this Pharisee does because we're truly no better. Instead of being awed by God's great forgiveness, Simon here responded with judgmentalism. And when Jesus saw this, like we said earlier, he decided to teach a lesson. And he taught a lesson using a parable. He said this in verse 40, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Okay, so just to frame get a frame of reference for this story. A denarius was one day's wages for laborers in the day. So 50 denarii was about two months' wages, give or take. So I want you to think about how much money you make in about two months' time. Okay, Think of that number. That's how much the second debtor owed this money lender. But then the first debtor, it says, owed 500 denarii, which amounted to two years' worth of wages. Now, given average salaries today, that would likely be between sixty dollars and $120,000 that this man owed. So both debtors owed a considerable amount of money, but one owed significantly more. And then Jesus said in verse 42 that when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. That is mercy. That is forgiveness, canceling the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? He asked this question to Simon, and Simon probably didn't like where this was going. But he answered the question anyway. In verse 43, Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Ding, 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 ding. We have a winner. (laughs) 
That's the correct answer to what's actually a pretty easy question. If someone forgave a debt of yours for a few thousand dollars, you'd love them. You'd be grateful for them doing that. Probably very much so. But if someone forgave a debt of over $100,000 to you, you'd be that much more grateful and love. Love and gratefulness are probably aren't strong enough terms for what you'd feel. You'd be overwhelmed with gratitude. And Jesus said that that is what this woman at his feet was feeling at this moment. Verse 44, Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. When we are forgiven, the first instinct we have is to love the forgiver. And the more we feel forgiven, the more we will love. Loving God is what Jesus says is the most important commandment in the entire Bible. So, if loving God is so important, and forgiveness produces love, then understanding how much we've been forgiven becomes crucial. So, how much do you love God today? Our love directly corresponds with how forgiven we feel. However much you realize that you've been forgiven for will determine how much you love God. Some of us might think, well, my background isn't that sinful. I don't have a drug dealer history or anything like that. So can I not love as much as some people? Maybe you grew up in a Christian or a moral home and and never really rebelled that much, and so you feel like you haven't been forgiven very much at all. But if you feel that way, you have not been hearing me today. If you've believed, no matter who you are, you have been forgiven for much. You just have to realize it. You've all been forgiven for much doesn't matter how sheltered you were. You still deserve hell for your sins. It may be harder for you to see how great God's forgiveness for you is, but God's forgiveness doesn't change. Our awareness of it does. In verse 44 to 46, Jesus contrasted Simon and the woman, clarifying what the difference was between the two. One loved deeply, the other didn't, because one felt forgiven deeply, the other didn't. Verse 44 again, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, as Jesus said this, Simon might have felt insulted by Jesus' insinuations. But he couldn't argue with the truth. It was common courtesy 
to have your guests' feet washed by your servants, if you were wealthy enough to have servants. Or to greet your guests with a kiss, which was the equivalent of a modern-day handshake or a hug. Anointing would have been reserved for very special guests, but a rabbi was considered a very special guest. And Jesus was shown hardly any, if any, normal hospitality by Simon. This would be like me inviting you to my home for dinner, but then when you show up, ignoring you when you come, ignoring your knocking on the door, and maybe when you have to let yourself in, not giving you a place to hang your coat or to take your shoes off, not showing you where the washroom is to wash your hands. These are common things. If anyone should have felt insulted by this situation, it was Jesus. But Simon's cold indifference... Jesus was simply revealing his heart. He was showing that he had no love for Jesus because he hadn't been forgiven by him. On the other hand, this woman, this unexpected and uninvited guest, had seemingly taken on the role of a hostess, washing feet, kissing, anointing. She poured out her passionate love for Jesus because she had been forgiven. Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now some argue that this verse says that our love earns us forgiveness from God. But this is simply untrue, especially if you look at what the original language says in the grammar What this verse means is that the woman's love was proof of her forgiveness. God's mercy always comes first. Our love is the response to it. And he was saying, this woman loved much, showing that she had been forgiven. Verse 47 in the New Living Translation captures this well. It says, I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. Notice that Jesus did acknowledge her sin. He wasn't pretending that she wasn't a sinner. But he still loved her and forgave her anyway. Just imagine how this woman must have felt in this moment. The euphoric freedom she felt as Jesus reassured her. And into verse 48, and he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I imagine she probably kept crying but for a very different reason. No longer because of shame or guilt, because of grace. Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, astonished the other people that were there. This actually was the most surprising development of the night. More surprising than a Pharisee having Jesus into his home. More surprising than an unsolicited woman dramatically showing up. More surprising than an expensive jar of perfume being used on Jesus' feet. People were stunned by Jesus' forgiveness. Look what it says in verse 49. It says, Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? who even forgives sins. 
doesn't say that they were surprised by whom he forgave, although they likely were. They were amazed that Jesus was able to forgive sins at all. Who is this who even forgives sins? As this passage concludes, we're going to see a few further, very quick principles about forgiveness. And the first one is implied in what we just read in verse 49, that Jesus' great forgiveness comes from his authority as God. Jesus' amazing forgiveness comes from his authority as God. Again, last time they said, who is this who even forgives sins? Now, people were right in their astonishment. Why? Because no one had the right to forgive sins against God. No one had that right. People could forgive sins against each other, no problem. But only the most offended party could actually offer forgiveness. Imagine for a minute that I heard some juicy gossip about you. Okay? I heard this gossip, and immediately I start spreading the gossip to all your friends and family members and hurting your reputation. You'd rightfully be hurt by what I had done, and you'd deserve an apology from me. But then, what if I went to someone else, maybe one of your other friends, and said, listen, I hurt so-and-so, I, I gossiped about them, and I'm really sorry about it. Would you please forgive me for them? <laughs> How would you feel? That's just stupid. <laughs> You're the only one who could rightfully offer me forgiveness. For me to go to someone else and ask them would be insulting. And if that other person went ahead and went, sure, you know what? Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> That'd be even more crazy. They wouldn't have the right to do that. But then, when Jesus came to earth, he started boldly and publicly forgiving people's sins. All their sins. And people were like, who is this? Who has that kind of authority? Who has that kind of right? Jesus evoked a similar response back in chapter 5, when he forgave a paralytic sins, and the religious leaders wondered, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And there's the answer to the question of who can forgive sins like Jesus did. God alone can. He is the only one with the authoritative right to exonerate all sins. And why? Because every time we sin, God is actually the most offended party. When we slander a friend, God is more offended than your friend. When we lust or commit adultery, God is more offended than your spouse or your significant other. When we disobey our parents, God is more offended than your parents. That's why God's forgiveness is the first forgiveness that we must seek. He is the most offended. His penalties are the most severe. His wrath is to be most feared. And yet, his love is the most pure. 
His grace is the most deep. And His forgiveness is the most wonderful. And He is the only one who can truly free us from the guilt of all of our sins. When Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins on the spot without even asking God, He was claiming to be God. And that's why it was so astonishing to people around Him. This shows us that the sinful woman's love and essentially worship of Jesus weren't misplaced. She wasn't honoring and praising any ordinary man. Jesus was God. It was completely right for her to worship Jesus with all the passion under her heart. Now, while God has the right to absolve whoever sin he wants to at any time, that's not completely the way that he works. See, he graciously wants us involved in the process. He doesn't force us to be forgiven by him. He waits for our response. And we see this in verse 50, where they say, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What we see here is this. Jesus' great forgiveness can be received through faith. We can receive Jesus' incredible forgiveness simply by believing in him with faith. Said, And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In this verse, we see the connection between faith and our salvation. And Jesus made sure that this woman understand and that everyone there understood that it wasn't her love that had motivated God to forgive and to save her. It wasn't her contriteness or sorrow or tears that saved her. It wasn't her costly perfume or her humble kisses that had saved her. It was the condition of her heart. She had faith in Jesus. As Ephesians 2.8 says, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. As you hear all this about Jesus Day and his amazing forgiveness, you might wonder, well, what do I have to do to be forgiven? I would love to be freed from guilt and condemnation and despair. What can I do to earn God's forgiveness? And the answer is you can't earn it. But Jesus already won it for you. All you have to do is to believe that he died for you. And that he rose again for you. But now by his grace, he invites us to receive his forgiveness for free by our faith. It wasn't free for him. Don't get me wrong. It cost him his life to pay our debts. But because of that, it's free for us. I need to ask you today, what is the condition of your heart? What's the condition of your heart this morning? Do you have faith that Jesus can forgive you of all that you've done wrong? If you do, 
Just ask him to. He will. Tell him you believe. Leave your sins behind you. And today, just like the woman in this story, your faith will save you. And your sins will be forgiven, and you can leave in peace, elated by his forgiveness. There really is no feeling like it in the world. And you can experience it today. If you're on the other side of this forgiveness already, you need to realize today how much you've been forgiven. Once again, come to that recognition and let it drive you to love and worship God passionately with all you are, with all your emotions and feelings and with all your desires, dreams, with all of your time and energy and money and possessions and relationships with all your words and your songs and your thoughts and your action, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And don't be afraid to share this passion with everyone you meet. Because everyone you meet is in need of God's amazing grace and forgiveness. Don't underestimate just how attractive God's forgiveness is. If there's one final lesson in this passage that teaches us, it is this, that Jesus' great forgiveness is very attractive to those in need. Jesus' forgiveness is undeniably attractive to those in most need of it. This is readily apparent throughout the story, seeing how attractive it was to the sinful woman, but it's also seen into the next chapter, in chapter 8, as Luke just gives a brief summary It says this in chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Here we see Jesus going more public with his ministry. And what was he doing? Bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. What was the good news of the kingdom? What was that good news? That God wanted to save his people. And that he had sent Jesus to do so. And now, through Jesus, sins could be forgiven. That was the good news of the kingdom. And wherever he went, crowds gathered to hear this amazing news. It was extremely attractive to them. It's like Jesus went on tour, taking his show on the road, and his groupies went with him. It says, and the twelve, his of his twelve disciples were with him. In verse 2, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So his twelve disciples went with him. But Luke makes special note here of key women who had followed Jesus. See, Jesus was especially popular with the ladies, but not because of his looks. (laughs) Jesus was popular because of his amazing ministry of grace. Luke makes it clear. These were women who had been healed and freed and saved. Some were healed of their diseases. Others had demons cast out of them. And all of them had been forgiven by God through faith. 
Some of these women had taken it upon themselves to provide for Jesus' ministry. And in Jesus' day, this type of treatment of women from a rabbi and to a rabbi was unheard of. And it shows Jesus' special attractiveness to those marginalized by society. This passage really shows us that everyone was in need of Jesus. And everyone can receive from him. Despite social norms or biases or conventions, men and women, rich and poor, healthy and sick, old and young, everyone needs Jesus. And the needy and marginalized generally realize their need for him more. The question today is this. Do you? Do you realize your need for him? Jared Wilson said in a fun way, I love my friend Jesus. He doesn't bring up all my old stuff. That's forgiveness. He knows we're sinners. He knows we have old stuff. But he loves us anyway. And he doesn't bring it up all the time on us. John, do you feel forgiven today by Jesus? If so, is your love for God growing because of it? Do you love him because of his forgiveness? John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, once felt this need to love God more. And he wrote, So much forgiven, so little, little love. So many mercies, so few returns. Such great privileges, and a life so sadly below them. And even there, in the midst of too little love, there's grace. May we strive not to pay the debt that has already been paid, but strive to pour out our lives in love and worship like tears and perfume in return for the kiss or forgiveness that Jesus has given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be rightfully awed by your love for us and your mercy, and your forgiveness, that you would look down on us and see sinners and yet love us anyway. Forgive us. Redeem us and save us. Help our lives to be a living testament of how much that love has meant to us. And may it grow increasingly every day, the awareness that we have for your forgiveness, so that we can love you more. In Jesus' name.